Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, I've got St. Wong, the portfolio manager at Prime Value. This is a fund that goes checking and looking for companies that are really good value. St. Wong will give you his three latest selections. And then we'll talk to uh, a guy called Mike Sullivan. Now, he is the founder of a company called Bluebet, which I'm sure many of you will have seen ads on television for. They listed last week, they did very, very well. And I interview him to see what is the future of this company and should the share price go higher? And then I'll talk to Simon Presley, the founder of Propertyology. And I ask him about three big mistakes that property investors make or anyone buying a house when it comes to selecting the right property. And then I ask him about Byron Bay. You know, are the price rises there gonna keep on going or is, is it really overbought? Is this still a good place to buy or not? Simon is the kind of guy who can give you the right answer on that particular subject. And finally, Ying Yi and Cheng from Bar Capital. She's going to tell us about the uh, press conference with the Reserve Bank Governor. Should we be worried about rising interest rates in the not too distant future? That's the show. Let's kick off with ST Wong from Prime Value. Well, joining me now is St. Wong from Prime Value, and uh, I, I want to, um, yeah, a first welcome you to the show, mate. Thanks, Pete. All right. So the the big issue that I want to talk to you about are things like uh, at the moment there are some fund managers out there saying, well, maybe there's a, a bubble going on here and expect a crash. Yeah, you see them. I see them. What's your reaction when you see these kinds of headlines? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Pete. Obviously, I think that the first point to really highlight is the fact that we are really in a transitionary period, right, from policy to, I guess, fundamentals. Um, and if I look back, what happened 11 years ago, which was precisely about one year after the GSC, and we're roughly about a year past the lows of um, the pandemic as well, um, what we saw back then at the early stage of the recovery was, um, I guess, fickle economic data. And that kind of throws people off because, uh, you know, what people are thinking, you know, is this good news or bad news? People are uncertain. But when we fade that noise and look out maybe a little bit further, a year, two, three years, what we saw back then, and, uh, and I think it's quite applicable today as well, is that we were, and I think we are in the early stages of a new economic cycle. And I think markets lead cycles. And I think from that perspective, I'm feeling somewhat positive on the outlook for the markets uh, next couple of years, precisely because economic cycle is gonna be strong and markets do tend to lead that. Yeah. And it seems to me when I'm reading these sometimes they're fund managers um, talking about this being a bubble. It seems to me there's two thoughts I have. One is they've been calling it wrong for a long time and they've missed out. Uh, and it's kind of wishful thinking that the market will eventually turn and make their, their forecasts look more sensible. But they also seem to be ignoring the fact that um, Interest rates have never been this low. 
And when we look at whether a stock is good value or overvalued, you always got to compare it back to something historically that is interest rates. Is that a fair call? Um, I think so. Absolutely right. Um, I think that's spot on that, you know, the environment has changed. But let me put it into context as well. Um, what happened last 12, 18 months is unique, right? So the first point to make is that we shouldn't extrapolate uh, the uniqueness of the last 12 months, 18 months market performance into the next 12 or 18 months. Um, so there is a contextual um, argument here as well that what we saw last year of you know, 30, 40, 50% increases in the markets or uh, specific stocks, um, surely we should not expect that to continue on the same trajectory. But having said that, in any markets, there will be pockets of sectors that will be overvalued. And it's really our impulse as fund managers or money managers to really move our monies to where we think uh, the best bang for our buck lie. Um, and that means you know, selling overvalued stocks or sectors and looking for undervalued uh, companies in, in the context of what's happened in the last 12 to 18 months. Again, drawing back to our experience the last from coming up from GFC as well, um, same questions being asked, um, same concerns, and these are all really valid concerns. And again, my contextual argument is that let's fade the noise, focus on what's key. And I think what's key here is, as you mentioned, rates are low, but what we are, has, what we are seeing today is really a front-loaded fiscal policy uh, driven market, which will result in economic growth in the next couple of years. And with that context, um, the market should remain, in my view, reasonably healthy. There will be sectors which will be sold off. And if, you, if you're in those sectors, you, you'll be losing money. Um, but there will be sectors where, where there will, will be winners uh, in that context. Yeah. I also think, ST, that um, let's look at the FANG stocks. On all the way up, there were people saying these stocks are overvalued. But history has actually shown that these are all pretty unique companies without very many real competitors. And that explains why they've done so well. For people who are critical of the tech sector, I think that criticism is, is fair for lots of businesses that have gone along in the slipstream of the really big and significant companies. And it seems to me, that if, as long as you're in tech companies that really have a future, that really have some kind of competitive advantage, have a growing moat as uh, the guys at WCM talk about, if, that, if you've got that, you're probably safe. You're, you're in the new, the new FANG areas of tomorrow. But there are gonna be some tech stocks that are certainly overvalued and you could lose money if you go too long those stocks. Absolutely. And again, just for context as well, um, Pete, is that, when we look at our traditional tech stocks, which are not really viewed as tech stocks anymore today in, in the context of seek.com, mm. realestate.com, um, car sales, these are tech companies, yeah. right? Um, but when you look at context, what they've done, and as you pointed out, uh, great business model, ability to price, you know, real estate just put up the prices first July, um, products in demand, um, but decent valuations. So for these reasons, um, I'm still holding realestate.com, our real estate group, by the way, um, because of these factors, 
Um, so as you pointed out, it's about individual companies where we think the business is going to go in the next couple of years. Um, and just throw another one, for example, Zero, great company. I like the business model. I don't own it. I do have issues with valuation. So if the share price does correct next six months, possibly it might come onto my radar. So um, I'm not a disbeliever tech um, just because they trade at uh, high multiples, uh, but there are some great businesses I love to own in, in marketplace. Yeah, I, um, I got zero at $70. So I think I'm, I'm ha happy to hold, but, but really I did a speech for zero in its second year of operation when it was $14. I featured it on my old Sky Business uh, program and I didn't buy it. So I'm, <laughs> I had to buy it 70 after missing it 14. Now, let's go to you now. I, I asked you to look at say three stocks that you think really look like good value now. So fire away. Right, Pete, um, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to suggest an old school company, which uh, you'd be familiar with, but perhaps not so much in the broader audience, News Corp. Yeah. $18 billion market cap, Australian. Um, it, it's, it's considered a small cap stock in Australia for some reason, but um, that's, that's besides the point. I think News Corp um, sits quite well um, from where, from where I, I'm coming from. Um, I think they're finally getting its act together in terms of actively remodeling its portfolio. It's been shedding a number of structurally challenged assets in the form of uh, newspapers and, and uh, books, for example, and it's been retaining a number of its better position assets. For example, you know, Wall Street Journal, uh, it owns REA, uh, a big chunk of REA, of course, or real, real, REA Group, but it also owns a move in the US, which is, you know, I, I guess, or like a better word, uh, real estate portal in the US. And what caught my attention for move was really about three to four quarters ago when move started to generate a lot of revenue growth um, in the US. And that, that was a kicker for me. So News Corp has got three things going for it. One, restructuring to unlock value for shareholders, and that's been on the cards for a long time. Secondly, the global trend towards digitization is actually benefiting a number of News Corp's uh, mastheads, you know, Wall Street Journal, for example. And finally, we're really seeing momentum, not just in REA Group, but move in the US, which I think is creating value for News Corp. So for me, um, it's, it's really one of the key picks for me uh, going for next uh, 12 to 18 months because of these factors. Uh, I find that quite interesting. Okay. It is not a stock which is which has a lot of focus within Australian market because it's moved its listing offshore. It's now considered a small cap stock. So that's one for you, Pete, uh, which I find quite interesting. Okay, your second one? Um, let me put forward um, another, I guess, uh, a mid-cap stock, uh, which has just done a tremendous acquisition uh, recently, uh, IDP Education. Um, Codes IEL, $8 billion market cap. Um, it has a global business in English language testing um, across more than 50 countries. Um, and it also has a significant business in student, pl student placements. So offshore students from China, India, looking to extend the studies into you know, the UK, uh, Australia, unfortunately, 
uh, is closed at the moment, uh, Canada and the US as well. Now it's just bought a business, um, it's just bought the English language testing business of the British Council in India, mm. uh, which is a really significant uh, transaction in my view. But in summary, I think IEL or IDP education is quite interesting because I think in my view is really well positioned to capture a rebound in demand um, in education when mobility improves globally. Um, and I think re it's really poised to accelerate its market share gains in both English language testing and in student placements as well. But the key thing for me is that um, it made a decision to go big in digital about three to four years ago. Mm. And as we know, that's what the pandemic has brought forward, digitization. So that's an interesting one in, in my view. Okay, and your final one? Final one, um, small cap stock, uh, 1.5 billion market cap, Collins Food, franchiser of um, KFC, largely in New South Wales and Queensland, and a small position in Taco Bell, uh, largely in, in Melbourne. Um, now, it just reported its results uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, look, the share price came off upon reporting its uh, upon re reporting its results but i feel it's one which has reported a very solid uh, set of numbers which i think uh, in my view is just a very stable earner compounding in the next couple of years uh, not terribly exciting but very solid uh, well-managed company which is going to give us a decent yield and decent growth in the next couple of years um, share price have come off from about 12 bucks to about 10 dollars at the moment so I think it's worth uh, looking at that from my position um, as one which is um, which is going to be a stable compounder from my perspective. Yeah. So just before we finish off, how many stocks do you tend to hold in your in your fund? Um, I tend to hold just under um, round of thirty five companies um, um, from 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 a fund perspective. Okay. Great stuff, mate. Good to talk to you. Catch Great. you next time. Thanks, Pete. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, joining us now on the program is the founder of Bluebet, Mike Sullivan. How are you, Michael? Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning to your viewers. So listen, mate, I, I guess the, 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 the big question is, um, Bluebet, where, where did the idea come from, considering there seems to be a whole lot of betting agencies in Australia. I presume most of them, apart from TAB, is owned by, by foreigners. But where did the idea come from that you really can make this work? Well, of course, Peter, I've been 30 years in this industry, uh, the last 20 in the online space. So I ran Sporting Bet for 13 years before we sold out to William Hill, which is one of those internationals that you're talking about. And then I had to have a bit of a spell for a couple of years. And then, um, Six years ago, I got the team back together, my old team, and we we're talking about a name and I'd, I, I owned a lot of names that I had reserved. 
and one of them was blue and we sort of came up with the concept that you know australia and blue it sort of it goes well together it's now forming part of our it's now forming part of our uh, our our marketing campaign from the australian point of view but that's really how we came up with the name of, of, of blue bet um away from sporting bet sports bet all those sort of names so it was just a novel one and it's sort of it's taken off and it's really uh, it's really been part of our growth yeah i gotta ask you who was the advertising agency that came up with that ad because it it is actually a, a great ad albeit there'd be a few politically correct people out there worried about some of the aspects of it Oh, well, Peter, what can you do? You're going to offend someone along the way. Um, look, uh, the agency's Jim Jam. They're not a very big agency, but they're a great size for us. And um, they were really, really good. And we just, look, I'm not sure whether punters really care whether we are Australian or not. I mean, at the end of the day, they want the best odds and they want to get paid. But it, it was a point of difference for us. I mean, Sportsbet have done a wonderful job of looking Australian, yet they're owned on the... London Stock Exchange um, and so but you know we really were truly owned by me and Australians so um, look it was a great agency we're really happy with the ad we've just got another couple we're producing at the moment for the spring that are going to go down the same sort of line so hopefully lightning can strike twice for us. Okay so you've had a nice debut on the stock market were you surprised I know you would have been happy with it but you were surprised at the reaction to it? Well, we just from from this amount of support we got from the cornerstones earlier when we were talking to the institutions and and retail, there was a huge amount of demand, um, and they said they liked our story, um, and so we we thought we were going to come home on fairly strongly. We're you know a little bit shocked by uh, the day one. Um, some of my mates in the markets just say keep saying it means that I sold it too cheaply. But anyway, we won't go down that track. And uh, the, the fact is that we've got great momentum. The last couple of days we've maintained that momentum. And, you know, we're just really happy to be listed and, and off and going. Okay. So with a new company, I think the most critical question people will be asking is, what is your competitive advantage? You know, someone like Warren Buffett talks about having a moat around your business. And there's a fantastic uh, international fund manager who's actually listed on the Australian stock market called WCM. And they say the best businesses they invest in have growing moats. So how are you going to grow your competitive, A, what is your competitive advantage? And B, how do you grow it, Michael? So two components, Peter. Um, first of all, talking about Australia. So I've got to about 1.5% of market share in Australia and the business is very, very profitable. So my, our first goal in Australia is to take that one and a half to two to three to three and a half to four percent. And if you quarantine marketing costs, the other costs really just flow down. My costs are so fixed, the business is so scalable, it just flows down to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So our Australian strategy is just continue to, to box very smart. Um, we think it, the, the landscape might from the outside look very competitive, but in fact, I don't believe it is. I think there's a great spot there for a boutique operator such as us. Um, Sportsbet actually consists of about nine brands now. Um, there's four of my old brands in there, Sportingbet, um, Centrebet, William Hill and Tom Waterhouse, who we bought under the William Hill banner. Um, and then there's Bet Easy, there's Crownbet. They've all been blended into one brand. And when the last of those mergers happened, um, it, which was Bet Easy into, into Sportsbet, 
there was a real spike in our sign-ups and the book, punters were ringing the customer service line and they were saying, look, I had a bet easy account. I had a sports bet account. I've now only got one. I like to have two or three accounts. So we think that consolidation is a real opportunity for us to grow, to, to grow the business in Australia. Um, I've got great technology. I've got a great team that's been with me. My team's been with me 8, 10, 12, 15 years. Bill Richmond, who's taking over as the CEO, has been with me for 15 years. So the people, I think, is also a considerable advantage to me. So that's Australia. And of course, the hype around our industry at the moment is about the US. And the US is this, you know, incredible opportunity, which is very rare in America, of a really, really unsophisticated greenfields industry in the gambling industry, because it's been underground for so long. And we believe we've got a great... The, the, the thing that America's starved of is talent and technology. Now, they'll catch up with the technology bit, but we've still got a great advantage because I own all my technology I've been developing for 20 years. But the talent part is I've got a really good bookmaking team that I can take over there. It gives us a great advantage. Our strategy there is to do joint ventures in America, which is going to be very capital light compared to some of our competitors. So we believe it's a really good, it fits in with my ethos that I run the bookmaking business around risk reward. I think I've got really little risk. We're not betting the farm for some really great reward if we can get the American part right. How many states do you have um, locked in at this point in time? Well, in the prospectus we said, and we're very close again, um, we're very close to a, a, a license in Iowa. We've got a handshake agreement. And we're just waiting for that to be inked. We've lodged a, uh, we've lodged along with others, a application, an extensive application in Virginia. Uh, and we're very close to a, in conversations in Colorado. And so they're three states that we've really concentrated on. And what our strategy is, is to get licenses in those smaller states, to establish a brand, we'll, we'll do our own technology and our own brand there. And then I wanna use that to be able to go to these mid-tier casinos who have got no idea what they're doing about bookmaking, but they've got, they've got the skins as they call them over there, the, what we would call licenses, and to say, we wanna form a joint venture where I will do everything from the front door to the back door, but you do the marketing in the front, which is the expensive part, but we have a joint venture. And we know there's an appetite because two years ago, I started down this track, but they said to me, well, look, we can see what you've done in Australia. How do we know you can do it in America? And so that's why I want to establish our own small licenses first, then go to these mid-tier casinos and form these joint ventures. Uh, Michael, one thing I've noticed, you haven't mentioned the TAB. Now, obviously it's a big incumbent, there's probably a lot of people who just sign up the TAB and stick with the TAB. <clears throat> what is it that Bluebet is going to offer that's going to make people think, oh, I'll leave Sporting Bet, I'll leave the TAB and go to you guys? Well, Peter, the, the, as I say, the TAB is the gift that's been given to me for 20 years. I mean, I've been growing businesses off the back of the TAB for 20 years and nothing's going to change. So one of the questions I often got asked in the in what was now before the announcement last, this week about the TAB was where do we think it was gonna be? And I said, well, look, quite frankly, the status quo would suit me because they, they've been a, a, very, a, a very kind competitor to us. We've taken market share away from them. And so to me, this is status quo. A demerger is the status quo. 
So it's going to be a distraction to them and we're going to continue to take um, market share away from them. One of the things that has happened through COVID, everyone thinks that there's been this big um, you know, explosion of gambling in lockdowns. And the numbers show that there hasn't been actually that much of a, a growth in the pie. It's just been growing the way it's normally been growing. But there has been an amazing transition from retail to online. And so once they come online, the two drop-off points with us is to download our app and to fund their account. Now, through lockdown, they've had to do that. Once they experience our technology and our app, we don't lose them. They stay as a client. So that, that has been a tremendous opportunity for us and it will continue to be. Um, so the TAB, I mean, look, they've got to run their own race, but they've, their technology has let them down over many, many years. And quite frankly, it shouldn't have. And it's got them to the position where they're in today. One last question, mate. Um, you, you don't want to do a new X. So what could go wrong? <laughs> well, you're right about that bit. <laughs> people, watching, people watching this show are actually investors, so I've got to ask the question, what could go wrong and what have you done to prepare for something going wrong? Well, Peter, I'm, I'm, I'm an unusual businessman in our sector. We're very profitable. I, I quite like EBITDA. Um, it's how I was brought up. Um, I've got a highly profitable business. My, I'm, very, I'm very aware of risk. I mean, my whole business is about risk, the, my day job, put it, for instance, put it that way. That, you know, in bookmaking, you are very aware of risk and risk management and what I call risk reward. So we are conservative in that sense. So look, I, our, yeah, I know it's said 100 times, but we under deliver and over promise. We've been very conservative in our forecasts. Um, it may have cost us a little bit in our valuation, but it, it, to me, it didn't matter. I wanted, to be, I wanted to be hitting our targets. We've got a very focused team. Um, I've got a great team with a good lot of experience. So look, I can assure people we will not be going down that path. Uh, and, uh, and even our American strategy, we're not betting the farm on it. We, we, there's a lot of upside for a, a relatively small bet. Michael, good luck with it, and uh, I hope you um, come up with a nice big win. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for your time. My next guest is Simon Presley, the founder of Propertyology. And I asked Simon, what are the big mistakes people make when it comes to property? And I then asked him about whether Byron Bay is the sort of place you should be thinking about buying in. So, without any further ado, let's go to Simon Presley. What are, what are the standout mistakes that people make when they decide, okay, I've got enough money in super, I've paid off my home, I think it's time to get into an investment property. What are the standout mistakes that people make that you have to try and talk them out of? And some of that great questions, some of those mistakes, a younger version of Simon Presley, he made them himself. But of course, no one chooses to make a mistake. It's not till sometime later that you realise you could have done better. I think the biggest uh, mistake is property investors buy a property in the same city that they live in. Dumb, but it's what everyone does. Um, they're just not conscious of why it's dumb. Um, we've all heard the saying, don't put all your eggs in the one basket. 
but unfortunately that's exactly what most property investors do all the time. So we all have to live somewhere. Um, some of us have a family home. Uh, so we're living in, we, we, we might own the property that we live in, sorry. And then when it comes time to investing, what do we do? We, we buy another property in that same location. You put all your eggs in the one basket. So biggest mistake, the share investor who might have some Commonwealth Bank shares is not going to then double down and buy some more Commonwealth Bank shares without first having some stocks in other, other companies on the stock exchange. So we, we respect that. Um, property to us is a financial instrument. We're not helping someone buy the family home. We're helping them make a very important financial decision. So we see it as a financial instrument. Um, another common mistake is people buy with their eyes. They get consumed by how a property looks or, or the, even the individual town or city. Um, they start emotionally processing how they would feel living in that town or city. And it's actually not important at all because you're not buying it to live in. The reality is that there'll be tens or hundreds of thousands of people living in that town or city already, but that doesn't have to be you. Um, so there's some big mistakes that people make. Uh, people somehow confuse the word capital in capital city for thinking it has anything at all to do with capital growth. It doesn't. The evidence supports that. Um, there are only eight capital cities. There are 200 individual regional towns and cities. Some of those are really big, some are medium sized, some are small. Um, many of those have outperformed all of our capital cities, but people would not be aware of that because on the first day of every every month, we get a little table that, that's got the name of eight cities in it and they're the, they're the capital cities. And it says, this is what each, um, each of those locations did each month. But there's never a table that says, this is what the other 200 did. Mm. And if people knew what the other 200 did, they would sort of go, geez, so I need to, I need to learn more about this stuff because the, the gold is often in the 200, not in the eight. Yeah, and also even within those eight capital cities, there's a whole lot of ver ver uh, variation between suburbs as well, isn't there? So we get an average price rise, but some could rise by a lot more and some could rise by a lot less. Correct. And uh, most of the capital cities, well, there's a few exceptions, but most of the capital cities, the cost of a well-chosen investment property um, would go would be going against the grain of that thing I said earlier about don't put all your eggs in the one basket. So whilst we might be able to justify that buying a property in suburb X uh, is a, is a good decision, but if it's going to cost eight hundred thousand dollars or nine hundred thousand dollars, even if we can afford that as an investor, I would argue that that's not the best that you could do. I would I would be breaking that up into two smaller components and buying two more affordable assets in other parts of Australia for the same reason that I might have a parcel of Woolworth shares and a parcel of ANZ shares. Let's talk about Byron Bay. Byron Bay, beautiful Byron. Yeah, well, beautiful Byron, particularly, I guess, if you bought there 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but even recently, I guess, if you bought before the coronavirus, it's had an extraordinary uh, rise in price. And I guess, People get sucked into those sorts of areas because the, the rise has been really, really big. Do you, do you imagine the rise can keep on going at this rate? Uh, well, at this rate, it's Byron, uh, like a few others at the moment, it's probably running at about a 30% per annum rate. Mm -hmm. um, some people might not believe that, but that's, that's the truth. Um, it logically doesn't make sense to me that it can continue to run uh, for much longer at that sort of pace. Doesn't mean the market will crash though, but 
Byron Bay is a great case study for those who are interested in, in investing in property to understand real estate more. Um, and it can, Byron Bay confirms some of the things that I mentioned earlier about common mistakes. Officially, over the last 20 years, Byron Bay has been Australia's best performed property market bar none. It has totally obliterated every other market in Australia. It's a regional community, not a capital city. It's got a population of 37,000, but so it's by no means some really big location. Um, its annual average population growth has been by no means anywhere near the highest of all the other locations in Australia. So a lot of the myths that people associate with property investing are completely defied by the actual performance of Byron Bay. The reason it's done so well um, is largely economic conditions. You don't need to be a big city of 5 million or 2 million people to actually have a thriving local economy. And Byron's economy for much of that last 20 years has been strong. Um, and it's not just the tourism that, you know, Peter or Simon might go to and enjoy a holiday. Um, a lot of the people who live in Byron Bay work as managers or executives. Um, and they may have an office in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Orange, Bathurst, wherever, um, but have a home in Byron. And when required, they jump on a plane or jump in the car and they go to a board board meeting somewhere else, but they're spending their salary in Byron Bay. Um, throughout the, not just Byron Bay, but places like Ballina and Coffs Harbour, very strong agricultural community um, and really strong for food manufacturing. If you like beer, Peter, apparently stone and wood has been Australia's, um, rated Australia's best beer for the last three consecutive years. That's brewed in the north coast of New South Wales, in and around Byron Bay, as are a lot of other um, organic foods and those sort of things. So that's what's underpinning um, the broader economy out there and it's economic conditions that really drives property prices. Great stuff, mate. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That's Simon Presley from Propertyology. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, joining us now is Ying Yan Cheng from Coolabar Capital. And uh, Coolabar manages my Switzer Higher Yield Fund, which is you know, linked to bonds. And bonds were uh, potentially affected by a very important Reserve Bank meeting on and there was a follow-up uh, press conference from the Reserve Bank Governor. And there's a whole lot of, whole lot of expectations about um, things were going to change. Let's see what changed, how significant those changes were. Ying Yi, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Peter. Why don't you put in context the importance of this Reserve Bank meeting? Yeah, well, this was going to be the key meeting where they would announce what they would do um, after, you know, the, the current round of QE, i.e. QE 2.0 um, ends. And so a lot of market expectations were riding as to, you know, what, whether they would change the current sort of um, pace that they were purchasing state and Commonwealth government bonds at. Um, and indeed, it was, you know, quite a significant sort of a meeting that had 
yeah, a lot of expectations riding on it. That's for sure. So, Ying Yi, explain to our viewers how much money the Reserve Bank has been putting into the economy every week uh, with QE1 and QE2 and then compare it to what I guess you'd call QE3. Yeah, so essentially the RBA announced in November 2020 last year its $100 billion QE1 program uh, and they did so again um, in February with the QE2 program, which was at the same sort of amount. Now, market expectations, um, obviously, for this particular meeting in terms of their announcement of what they would do um, when the current sort of QE2 program ends in September, um, it was very much riding on the size. And look, at Coolabar, our forecast was actually for a more flexible, open-ended, state-dependent program. Uh, at the same weekly pace as QE1 and QE2, so I at $5 billion a week. Um, and what we heard from the RBA yesterday was that we would be indeed getting a flexible, open-ended, state-dependent program. However, they've decided to make this $4 billion a week to avoid increasing quantitative easing on a relative basis. Um, what do I mean by increasing QE on a relative basis? Well, that very much rides on the fact that the Commonwealth Government and also some of the states have, you know, announced a dramatic drop off in their bond issuance. So were the RBA to continue, well, continue buying, I should say, at $5 billion a week, and given that you have less issuance going forward, then you know, the overall size of QE on a relative basis would actually be increasing. So, in fact, what they're doing is, you know, tapering it to $4 billion a week, um, but that is still very much in line with the reduction in bond issuance as a result. Okay. But does that mean that the overall size, or let's call it QE3, is ultimately going to be smaller than the, the QE1s and QE2s? Yeah, that's a good question, Peter. Um, basically, at the moment, we don't actually know what the size of QE3 will look like because they've shifted to a time-dependent bond purchase program. So they would said that they would review this quarterly. Uh, and, you know, educated guesses could suggest anywhere between, you know, $105 billion to $142 billion. How do we get there? Well, essentially, you could say in the first quarter, they do $4 billion a week. Um, and then you get to $3 billion a week, $2 billion a week, $1 billion a week, you know, reducing it by $1 billion every quarter. Mm -hmm. If we were to do that, then you get to $105 billion. Mm. Um, something more conservative than that would get you to $142 billion as a total size. Now, there's also the argument that the RBA could um, taper more aggressively and they go from $4 billion in the first quarter, $2 billion in the next quarter, $1 billion in the following quarter, which gets you to about $69 billion. However, this is inconsistent with, uh, you know, Governor Lowe's statement about potential future tapering. They don't want to be tapering too quickly. Um, and if anything, he did sound quite dovish, um, you know, obviously despite, you know, that slight sort of tightening in policy um, pivot, um, he still sounded quite dovish and he wanted to be very clear that, you know, 
we are getting the inflation numbers that um, or unemployment numbers that he wants before he's going to aggressively, you know, taper or hike rates even in the future. Okay, now let me take you out of the area where you feel supersonically confident, namely bonds and interest rates, <laughs> in the stock market now. And if if the news coming out on Tuesday was more aggressive in terms of pulling back, if it wasn't, a, I call it a tiny taper, and you can use it if you want to, uh, rather than being a, a tiny taper, if it was a much more aggressive taper, do you think that would have been a, a negative signal for the stock market as opposed to what we're seeing today? It's a fairly positive uh, reaction on the stock market. Yeah, look, I, I definitely think it is a positive um, for the stock market. I mean, obviously, without being an equity sort of an expert, because the fact that they are sort of, you know, stepping back a little bit in terms of tapering, notwithstanding the fact that it's still very much consistent with what I said about reduced bond issuance, they're still in, you know, stimulatory sort of, um, you know, status. Um, and if anything, the RBA, you know, tapering to $4 billion a week, so still continuing with its bond purchases, also, you know, acknowledges the fact that we have had a bit of an improvement in, um, you know, in economic sort of fundamentals. Um, the other thing is that the RBA was quite insistent, well, it sounded as if the RBA was quite confident about, um, you know, the population being vaccinated and therefore borders to be reopened again, which again is very good for economic activity. So I think in that sort of environment where you still have stimulus, you still have economic activity because borders are reopening, that is, you know, quite a, a nice sort of Goldilocks sort of scenario for equity markets. Okay. Without being an expert, of course. Of course, of course, of course. I, I'm, that's me, but I, but I just wanted reinforcement from my point of view. <laughs> all right, now, one, one last thing. What we all care about is, you know, the implied undertaking. I won't call the promise or a pledge, which I often have said in my writing because writing has to be a little bit more controversial, but at least he's undertaking that interest rates would stay where they are till 2024. Do you think he gave himself a bit of wiggle room that if this economic growth continues to be fantastic, he may well have to raise the cash rate before 2024? I mean, he, there is that possibility, but, um, you know, as we heard from him yesterday afternoon, um, low sounded like this wasn't really much um, a possibility at this stage. And if anything, the RBA won't want to be front-running um, the Federal Reserve. So unlike some of the offshore central banks, like whether it's New Zealand or the Bank of, so the RBNZ, so the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and, you know, the Bank of Canada, for example, um, who have, you know, been a bit more sort of aggressive with their um, policy sort of tightening, that has had implications on their exchange rate. So we've seen the Canadian dollar, um, you know, rally versus the US dollar. We've seen the Kiwi dollar rally as well. Um, doing that would obviously have, you know, if we were to follow the same sort of route um, and tighten before the Federal Reserve in the US, then that has the uh, impact of pushing our exchange rate higher which is not something that we want. So if anything, you know, I, I think the RBA will be very much in the footsteps of the US Federal Reserve. So it's still also quite dependent on where that particular central bank, um, you know, decide when they decide to sort of taper, whether it's 2023 
um, you know, possibly we could, you know, follow after that, but I think we will err on the side of caution, if anything. Yeah. Yin Yin Chang, I think uh, Dr. Lai will send you a Christmas card on that answer. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Peter. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you want to know more information about how you can invest wisely, have a look at the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au or check us out daily at Switzer Daily. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you next week.